This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au series in the book of Acts. Uh, I'm, I'm hitting Acts 15 today. It was, it's a long passage. So I won't read everything today. Uh, and I hope that uh, my little Facebook live video with my little beautiful Evie uh, so moved you and captivated you to read the text before you got here uh, this morning. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read uh, portions of our passage today. I'm going to pray and then I'm going to preach and uh, we're going to listen and I pray and hope that if you are here today and you don't know Jesus and you, you, you don't have a, you wouldn't say that you're a Christian. I do pray. I'm going to put it out there. I'm not trying to trick you into this, but one of my aims here is that you would come to know Jesus. And on the way here, my son and I were praying for everyone here and, and a whole list of people that no one would go out of this life without knowing, loving, and serving Jesus and into the next apart from him. So I'm going to pray towards that end. I want to pray for this church. I want to pray for the city. I want to pray for this world. And I want to pray for those 19 kids that are still awaiting to be uh, sponsored uh, by us. So let, let's pray. Uh, Father, uh, we thank you. I thank you for, uh, for this world. I thank you for uh, the fact that, Jesus, you have not taken out of this world, but you have put us in this world, that you have sent us to this world. And so, Father, I pray for those here uh, who may be far from you, uh, that you would draw them near Holy Spirit now. I, I pray for those who are, Lord, a part of your family, that you would build them up today, that you would help me to forget the things that I've prepared that will be unhelpful for your people, but help me to remember the things that will be helpful for the uh, upbuilding for the, uh, um, uh, of your people. And we pray for these kids now uh, in Cebo, uh, uh, in the Philippines, and we, we do pray, Lord, that you would so move us to love them so practically, Lord, that we would give up uh, maybe some comforts so that they can know the gospel and have their basic needs met. So towards this end, Lord, I pray that you will work today, not only here, but across the world. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Acts 15, join me. It'll be up on the screen. I'm going to be reading uh, the first part of Acts 15, then a bit, and then uh, at the end, and then uh, some of chapter 16. And this is the word of God. But, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all of the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He continues, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. We'll continue from verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take uh, with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to go uh, uh, by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. And Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all went on their way through the cities. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. Now, up to this point, what's been happening in the book of Acts? We are at a, about a, a, a bit of a fulcrum point where from chapter 15 onwards, we, we don't hear much, if anything, about Peter. And Paul becomes the prime human actor in the story of God. And so we, we're at a place now where we have seen already opposition come from within and from without. We have seen them being persecuted and stoned and jailed. We have seen uh, people lie to the Holy Spirit even inside the church. We have seen a lot already, but what we haven't seen is something as unique as this, and it's false teaching. False doctrine is beginning in such a way to really disrupt the church. There is now this explicit false teaching that is happening through these men, these Pharisees who, who belong to this group called the Pharisees who are teaching that, yes, we must believe in Jesus, but we must also follow the customs of Moses and become circumcised. And, and, and so today, listen, today what we'll be talking about is doctrine and theology. Ugh. I don't know, uh, maybe some of our experiences 
have been quite negative. But let me just encourage you that every single one of us is a theologian. We all have, whether you are a Christian or you're not, whether you are a believer, whether you're an atheist, whether you see yourself as a secular liberal humanist, you are a theologian. You have thoughts about who God is and how he, she, it works or doesn't work. We are all theologians. The question is whether we are good theologians or we're bad ones. And theology is not just something that is for the academics, for in the ivory tower. Theology shapes the way we treat our spouses. Theology shapes the way we treat our workers. Theology shapes the way we steward our sexuality and our money. Theology is eminently important and practical. Theology and doctrine is about everyday life. If you think about life as a drama, as a play, doctrine are the stage cues. They tell us, what, how are we to live as the people of God? What is this way of Jesus that he gives to us, that he introduces to us? And then how are we to live? How are we to be a new humanity? How are we to be a community? How are we to think of who God is and how he works in the world? Because if we don't, rest assured, that lies will come through, gospel lies. And what we find here in this text in the first five verses are gospel lies. And the lie is this. It's Jesus plus. The Pharisees had no problem at, at all whatsoever. Now at this point, these particular Pharisees had no problem with saying, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the awaited king. He is the one who will usher in the kingdom of God. But now you must also become circumcised. This is how you become saved. This is how you enact salvation in your life. It's by believing in Jesus and the works what Paul says elsewhere, the works of the law. It's by adding something else. And I wonder, you know, we, we, we don't hold that here. And I wonder if down at, uh, you know, if you're filling out a connect card, if you tick that box to join the family. I, I doubt it. And, and so lies can look different for us. The problem with this is that adding anything to Jesus, a Jesus plus gospel is actually subtracting from Jesus. Because what we're saying is this, what Jesus has done on the cross, his resurrection, his perfect and sinless life, it's just not enough. I need to contribute something positive here for my justification. And what's, you know, justification is, is simply this. Justification is the doctrine, the reality of how we are made right with God. I don't think I need to prove to you that there's something deeply broken in each and every one of us. Why are we so incredibly fixated by ourselves? You know, there's a definition of sin that says that sin is basically a human being that is curved in on themselves. Why is it that we pay so much attention to our self-esteem and our ego? Did you wake up this morning thinking about your elbow? If it's not broken, you probably didn't. Why is it that every time we pass by a mirror, we have to just make sure we're, we're looking all right? It's because there's something deeply broken in us, and that's why it draws attention to it. But there are two lies 
two particular lies that I think we in this community, I don't think we're susceptible to the lie that we need to believe in Jesus and become circumcised. Anyone here? Vying for that? Anyone voting for that? Anyone want to say, yep, that's, that's the way to salvation? I don't think that's, that's it. But we equally have lies that we believe. And this is the first one. And I'll, I'll note, too, that the gospel requires me to change before I am accepted by Christ. That the gospel, in order to be accepted by Jesus, we believe that we need to make ourselves presentable to Jesus. It's like when I go to the dentist, I work really hard to brush my teeth. I floss. I want to impress this guy. I mean, this is a professional. He knows, he, she knows, they know what they're doing. And so I want to impress him. And so I spend uh, 20, 30 minutes just brushing, flossing, you know, making sure everything is legit. And that's sort of how we come. We say, okay, I understand that Jesus came to, to, to rectify me, to remake me, to, to make my broken heart whole, to, 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 to change the way I live in this world. But let me just fix myself up because we live out of a deep shame, sense of shame. And so we believe we must earn our salvation. But Paul says this in Galatians 2.21. He says, I do not nullify and Paul in Galatians, I, I should have you uh, know that he is dealing with the same issue. That there were some people who came into the church and said, yes, it's okay to believe in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. He's dealing with the same issue. And he says this in Galatians 2.21. I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness, and that is a right standing with God, justification that I am made right in the eyes of God, where through the law, through what I do, then Christ died for no purpose. The NIV says it a bit stronger. It says that Christ died for nothing. If I have to add anything to the fact that I am accepted and loved by God, then Christ died for nothing. This is not a, a 99% and I just need to put in that 1%. But so often we live that way out of a deep, self, uh, deep sense of shame. One of the gospel lies is that we need to change before we come to Christ. The other gospel lie, and I feel that this one may be a bit closer to, to home for some of us, for, for others, is that we don't need to change after we come to Christ. The first lie has to deal with justification, how we come into a relationship with Jesus. The second lie has to do with our sanctification. And sanctification simply means this, how we grow up into Christ. How is God remaking us? How is God remaking our character so that we can reflect him? I mean, did you know, listen, did you know that the salvation project what God is doing in the world means that he is remaking us to look like Jesus. He is remaking us to look like Jesus. And one of the lies that we believe is that, well, as, as, as long as I believe in him, as long as I have some intellectual assent, then I'm, I'm cool. I, I don't really need to change. And sanctification is this, becoming more human. I mean, let me stop there. I'll finish the definition. But so often, we think that growing up into Christ, we think that growing up as a believer, we think that becoming mature means that we become more spiritual, that we become less earthy, that we become strictly otherworldly. 
But becoming more human, sanctification is becoming more human. So as to live according to the grain of the created order and the coming kingdom. God wants to make us fully human, not angels. He's come to redeem and renew us. And holiness has fallen on bad times, has it not? I mean, I remember all the time, he, um, you know, hearing these slurs thrown, thrown across in and outside of the church. This, this slur, holier than thou. This idea that we don't need to pursue holiness because, well, we, we, you know, we don't want to uh, uh, maybe offend someone or we don't want to uh, um, make people think that the gospel is also about how we behave. You know, so often, and I've said this myself, I've said that the gospel is not about behavior. And what we mean by that, and I think partly that's true, but what we mean by that is that so often people in our culture think that becoming a Christian simply means you adopt this new set of moral standards. But Jesus does speak about behavior, but he speaks about a behavior that flows out of a a new heart, not just an external code. But surely... This is, what, this is what Hebrew says about holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Holiness is important. And it's not a holier than thou, but it's a holier for thou. God is creating a people for himself and he's growing them up into maturity so that not we can shine, but so that he can. It's for the world, your sanctification. Listen, your growing up into maturity is not for yourself simply. Jerusha, a couple weeks ago, she blew me away when she said this as she was closing the service. She said that salvation has come to us on the way to someone else. Salvation has come to us on the way to someone else. And also, our growing up into Jesus is not only for us, but for the world, for the good of the world. So these two lies, the lie that we need to change before we come to Christ and the lie that says we don't need to change after we come to Christ are two lies, two gospel lies that I feel we need to combat. But Paul, Paul's language is incredibly strong, incredibly strong. In the book of Galatians, he says that if anyone anyone preaches a different gospel than the one of grace, the one that I have presented to you, let them, whether it's me or an angel, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be separated and cut off from God. Theology matters for life. And so gospel truth. And the next, the next section uh, from 6 to 18, I want to read that one again as A council comes together. Let's read that again from 6. The apostles, this is chapter 15, verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after they had much debate, let me just stop there. Oftentimes we think theological debate. Who cares how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? But theology is eminently practical. And here we see 
a pastoral heart come out of these men and this council that gets together to protect the truth of the gospel. Galatians 1, 6, 9, Paul says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul, again, in 1 Timothy, he says this to, to his protege, the, the guy who we'll be looking at in just a minute. He says, teach and urge these things, the gospel. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. He goes on in verse 20 to say, oh, Timothy, oh, church, guard the deposit entrusted to you. This matters because life matters, because eternal life matters. You know, we have a number of nurses and doctors here at Anchor, and they have to follow uh, particular protocols to save the, live of, the lives of people. They have to pass on, you know, uh, the, 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 the medical world has not just popped up on the scene. It's been hundreds and hundreds of years of, uh, of testing and trying and, and codifying and then they pass this stuff on in university through years of study. And they, they pass all this on. Why? Because life matters. And Paul is telling Timothy, pass this on. Guard the doctrine of the gospel because life matters. Not only this life, but eternity. Doctrine matters. Because we need to know the way that the creator has revealed himself and engaged with the world because we could get this wrong. And central is this. What's the gospel truth? The gospel truth is this, verse 11. But we believe, this is Peter speaking, and I think this is the last time Peter speaks in the book of Acts. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And he laid it down. What is the gospel? The gospel is through faith, uh, rather by grace, through faith. We add nothing to being accepted by God. And this is the difference between the, between the gospel and religion. Religion says this. Religion says if I do enough, if I read enough, if I know enough, if I travel to this place, if I do these things, then finally God will accept me. And the gospel says God, Christ went there. Christ went where we could never go, where we should have gone, to the cross. And now you're accepted. And here, Peter just lays down, he says, it is by grace. Paul, in Ephesians 2.8, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. There is nothing, Anchor Church, that we can do 
to be accepted by God. Accept in humility. Just accept the gift. It, it is a, what, what do you do with a gift? You accept the gift. The gospel is free. The gospel is important to guard. And if I, I want to say this with, with, with Paul, if you ever hear me up here, if you ever hear Matt or, 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 or Brad preach another gospel to you, you need to find a way to get us out. We need to go. Because the gospel is free. The gospel is of grace through faith. But then, there's this strange section here, verses 36 to 41. And I, 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 was, I was racking my brain. Why would, in, in the midst of all this, right, in the midst of clarif- you know, gospel clarity, in the midst of, uh, of this council that got together to debate, to, to, to confirm what the gospel is, there's this strange episode here. And I believe the reason why this is here is because he wants to show us that even when we agree on the most fundamental of things. Paul and Barnabas agreed on the most fundamental reality of the world. The most fundamental, this is the bedrock of reality. Whether we see it that way or not, this is the bedrock of reality. He and Barnabas agreed. And yet, on some secondary matters, they decided to separate. And I, I wanted to skip over this. But our church has been through an episode where this has happened recently with, with Brian's rec- uh, uh, resignation. And a lot of us have been questioning, well, why, why, why shouldn't the gospel just transcend all of this? And here what we see is Paul and Barnabas agreeing on the fundamentals of the gospel and yet disagreeing on methodology, on who they should take. And they have a disagreement and they part ways. And yet that little section ends with hope. It says this it says and he went through through Syria and Sicilia strengthening the churches the gospel has not been stayed the gospel has not been put under wraps we didn't hit pause on what the gospel is doing in this church and in this city because we have had some disagreements here and I want to acknowledge that and we need to acknowledge that even while we may agree on the most fundamental of things it seems that it's okay to disagree on some secondary matters and go our separate ways. But what is hopeful as well is they, they, they were arguing. They, just, they disagreed over taking Barnabas' Barnabas's cousin, John Mark. But what we find later on in, in the book of Corinthians is that Paul and Barnabas reunite. What we find in, in the book of 2 Timothy, Paul's last letter, he says, I, I need John Mark to come with me. And so there's hope. And I don't want us to be deflated by the fact that even while we may agree on fundamentals and disagree on non-essentials, that may cause us to go different ways, but the gospel is still going to go forward. And finally, so we had gospel lies, gospel truth, and then what we find in the last few verses is gospel love. Join me, 15 verse 19, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For, uh, for from ancient generations, Moses had, has had in every city those who proclaimed him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. 
in chapter 16. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, and he circumcised them. What? You're the guy. Listen, Paul, in, in the book of Galatians chapter 5, he says this about the Judaizers. He says this. He goes, you're, you're so keen on circumcision, go all the way. He said, I just wish that they would just emasculate themselves. Do it. You're so keen. You believe this is so incredibly important. And then we have Paul being okay with this council saying, well, there are a couple things, uh, you know, yes, it is by grace, but there are a couple things that you should abstain from. What, what's going on here? And I think what's going on here is that this is a display of gospel love. See, gospel truth, we all, we all may have this idea that gospel truth makes us rigid, that gospel truth makes us like the Pharisees, that gospel truth makes us nasty and cold. But gospel truth leads to gospel love. And what was happening here is that in a church full of, of cultural Jews, they were telling the Gentiles, listen, you have freedom in the gospel. You do not need to be circumcised in order to believe in Jesus, in order to be accepted by him. But use your freedom now for those around you who may have a weaker conscience. And a lot of us, we know, we, in our hyper-individualistic culture, we don't necessarily think this way. We think, how can I use my freedom as a Christian for me? But this is a radically, radically, radically community-centric idea that we use our freedom of the gospel for others. This is what uh, uh, John Stott says. He says, having established the principle... That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, without works. It was necessary to appeal to these Gentile believers to respect the consciences of their Jewish fellow believers by abstaining from a few practices which might offend them. So we are free in the gospel and yet we use that freedom for the other. So I live in a predominantly Muslim community in Bankstown. And when I do my shopping, I, 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 do, I, I haven't given up uh, uh, bacon and ham and things like that. But w what I do is I, I want to be really careful with who I, I go for checkout. I don't want to offend anyone unnecessarily. And so I'll go to self-checkout or, or, you know, I'll do something like that. But what freedoms are you using for the other, for those inside and outside of our community? Our freedoms are not to be used for ourselves. Our freedom. Did you know, listen, did you know that by exercising freedom around our brothers and sisters who may have a weak conscience can destroy them? This is what Paul says. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. 
I mean, that is radically non-hyper-individualistic. How often do we think about our words or how we dress or how we spend our money? How often do we think how this, what, what does that communicate to our community? And we need to know each other to know this. We need to be a family. And how can, so how can we be showing this gospel love at anchor? Two practical, very practical, I think, suggestions. This is not law. Suggestions. So often, and I'm speaking uh, biasly as a parent, so often I see the, the, the moms uh, and the dads trying to have conversations with people, you know, at, at, during morning tea. And they're harried, they're distracted, they can't really have a, a solid conversation because, they, you know, the little spawns are running around getting into things they shouldn't do. Or my, I should speak in, in first term, mine. What if we show this radical other love where the singles or people who don't have children just take the kids during morning tea so that the parents can go take a, probably take a nap. They're like, oh, the kids aren't here. I'm going to go take a five-minute nap. But so that they can have conversations. And, and for the parents, how about you open up your homes and you allow people, singles and, 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 and marries maybe with no kids or, or young couples, to come into your home. Yes, you are curtailing your your, you know, your time, but what if you let someone in so that you can show gospel love? How can we love one another in this community in such a practical way? I'm not putting gospel law on you, but gospel truth doesn't lead to gospel hardness. It leads to gospel love. So what's the gospel? This is the gospel. The gospel is the historical reality of God breaking into this world in the man, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, who died on the cross under Pontius Pilate and who was raised three days later for our justification. He hung on the cross for me in my place. He stood condemned and he defeated, he defeated Satan, sin, and death on the cross. And through the cross, we get to share in the kingdom of God. Of God, And as we share this good news of the kingdom that God is renewing the entire universe. He's renewing the entire universe. By removing the curse of sin and death, more and more people are co-opted into his family as ambassadors for the king. And the goal of the gospel is not to make us more spiritual, that is ghost-like. The goal of the gospel is to make us fully and finally human again. We live in a world that seems more real than the coming kingdom. We, 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 what we see, what we touch, what we smell, what we taste, it seems more real than the kingdom of God. But what we're living in today is actually less real. It's important, but God is remaking it. It's sort of like an upside-down world. It's, it's a world, it's the world that God created, but not the, uh, the world as God intends it. It's the ethereal world. It's a thin world. A world and a system that is slowly being taken over like a virus by the kingdom of God. And that's why, listen, that's why the first word of the gospel is this. Repent. Change the way that we view the world. Change the, change the way we view humanity. Change the way that we see Christ. Because God is making a new world. And he's calling us to be a new people with new minds 
and new hearts and one day new bodies. And we're going to live with him forever on this earth. And everything that is wrong with the world, listen, everything that is wrong with the world will seem, like C.S. Lewis says, like a bad dream. God will take all broken things and make them beautiful. And this is by grace through faith. And this is the question I'll leave you with. Is do you want in on this quiet revolution? Do you want in on what God is doing in this world? And I invite you, if you're not a believer, I invite you to trust in Jesus. I invite you to come to him because he has been pursuing you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for who you are for us in Christ. We thank you that you are good. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves. We thank you, God, that you have sent your son in flesh and blood so that we can see him and touch him and one day we will be with him. We thank you, Jesus, that you did not give up your humanity when you ascended into the clouds at the right hand of the Father. But you are a fully human and fully God, even today. And you are interceding for us. You are praying for us always. You understand our weaknesses. You are our good and faithful high priest. You have been lower than we have ever been. You have experienced a depression Deeper than anyone can ever experience. You have experienced isolation. A greater isolation than any one of us could ever experience. And now because of that, we can be part of your coming kingdom where depression will be no more. Where anxiety will be no more. Where confusion and false doctrine... And broken hearts and poverty and oppression will be no more. You're calling us to join you in this quiet revolution to be the people of God in this city. That we would be a beacon of shining light. Not so that we can be glorified, but so that you can. So Holy Spirit, I pray now that you would blow through this place. That you would call those who are far from you near. That they would find hope and meaning and purpose in the one who has created them. That they would finally come home. We pray towards the end that you would be glorified, God. And this local little body of believers here at Anchor would be built up. And so that this city would see an amazing move and work of God. Make us more human, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.